This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for October 7th, 2012. The Gospel is taken from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 2 through 16. The message is by Father Ron Baird. In this morning's Gospel lesson, the Pharisees come to Jesus to ask him a question. And just as a reminder, the Pharisees are the uh, group of, of Jews living in Israel at the time who are sort of like um, the Baptist Sunday School Union. I mean, they're the people who believe that reading of Scripture is very important and that living your life by what Scripture says is very important and the ter- interpretation of Scripture is very important. So they're not just some goofy people. You know, we tend to talk about Pharisees like, oh, they're bad. But we forget sometimes what, what the group really is about. As a matter of fact, Jesus probably went to a Pharisaical uh, synagogue in all likelihood because they're the ones that founded them. And so they come to him and ask him an, an odd question. They say, teacher, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, why do you think that they asked him that question? And he wasn't even married. It's an interesting question, isn't it? It's a controversial subject, that's right. Because think about this. If Jesus says yes, what does that mean? The marriage isn't very important. Oh, sure, go ahead. You know, it's not a big deal. If he says no, then he's denying what the book of Deuteronomy says. So it's, it's one of those things that no matter what you say, you look bad. No matter how he answers it, yes or no, he's going to look bad. And he does what he often does with Pharisees because they're always trying to catch him up in these sort of difficult questions of how many angels can dance on the head of a pen sort of thing to see if they can trick him and make him look dumb in front of all the people who follow it, come out. And he says... Well, you're teachers of the law. What does Moses say? Well, Moses says that he can write a certificate of divorce and divorce her. And he says, you're right. So now they think, oh, he's saying yes, right? He said, but it wasn't like that from the beginning. It is because of your hardness of heart that he gave you this law. Now, that's an interesting turn on the question, isn't it? Because, I mean, in the United States, it's legal to get a divorce. But I don't know that most people would recommend it. I mean, we don't really promote it. You don't see billboards saying, have a nice day, get a divorce. Um, You know, divorce is a wonderful thing. Everybody rush out, you know, try it once at least. I mean, we really don't want to promote it but it's legal. But even in our society, it's, it appears as, you know, at best a failure of a relationship, you know, a brokenness, and, and oftentimes provokes lots and lots of guilt and struggle and pain in getting there. And, you know, you read the divorce statistics and, and you know, you just think, oh, gee, you know, this is really bad. I don't know if you know, but half of all marriages in the United States end in divorce. And so when Jesus gets together with his disciples a little bit later, they, they decide, 
I'm not real sure what he said. <laughs> he said, yes, it's legal, but it wasn't supposed to be that way. Um, and so they said, what, what did you mean by that? So is it lawful or not? And so to get to it, you have to go back a little bit. When he said, he said it wasn't so, but it wasn't so from when? From the beginning. When's he talking about? Before the fall of human beings, before sin came into the world, it didn't exist. So the only reason why divorce exists, he's telling everyone, is because sin has come into the world. It's because sin has come into the world that it has been made legal. But it wasn't intended that way. Now, the disciples say, can you explain that to us a little bit? And he says, sure. Here's the problem. Anybody who, who marries a woman and divorces her and then marries another woman commits adultery. And if she gets married again, she's committing adultery. Do you think that made him feel any better? Probably not. I mean, it must have been shocking to them to think, golly, it's like sin upon sin upon sin upon sin upon sin. You know, where does it ever end? How do you ever get out of it? And they're still trying to figure all this out when he, when they notice that there are a whole bunch of little kids who come in. They want to see Jesus. And the parents want him to see him. They want to lay hands on him. And so the disciples says, it says they, they sternly tell them to leave. I like that. Have you ever been in a church like that? I have. I remember um, one time um, we were in a church and and John was probably, oh, two, I guess. You know, two-year-olds. And John, I mean, we were blessed. John's always been a pretty quiet and easygoing kid. Um, I'm glad that he didn't give me a more rambunctious kid. I think he knew that I was old and feeble and wasn't capable of dealing with it. But And so he's never been real loud anyway. And, and so he's just, you know, he kind of talked to himself while he would draw or something. And I will forget that this person sitting in the pew in front of us turned around and glared at us. I just smiled. <laughs> they didn't say anything. They just glared. And then another church I went into, when John started talking, a really nice lady came over and said, you know, we have a nursery. I said, yeah, I do. <laughs> she said, would you like for your son to go into it? I said, no. <laughs> he prefers to be in church with Jesus. They didn't really know what to do with that. Um, but it's the same thing that Jesus is teaching them here. It says Jesus became indignant at that. Now, why? Well, it's because they have missed the whole point of what he was trying to talk about. They're still back on whether people can get divorced and married again. And he, he, they missed the whole reason. Why is it that people get divorced and married again? Did you hear that? What did he tell them? It's because of your hardness of heart. You see, that's the problem. That's the root cause of it. And you can do all you want to to set rules and, you know, regulations and, and, you know, provoke guilt and tell people how it's supposed to be and do all these kinds of things. I mean, you do as much of it as you want to. But if you don't resolve that core issue of hardness of heart, you've done nothing. You know, and what we've learned, though, is that we can modify people's behavior by guilt. Any parent on the planet knows that. I mean, you can, you can modify behavior by guilt. And the church learned that too. And so very often that's what the church did. 
was, these are the rules. You will follow them. If you don't follow them, you're in trouble. And what happened when we didn't follow them? We felt guilty. You know, did you ever have your parents tell you, well, you should feel guilty? Thanks. <laughs> but the problem with guilt is while it does a great job of modifying behavior short term, it also has another repercussion that we don't ever think about. Guilt makes us do what? What do you do when you feel guilty? You run out and tell everybody? No, you pull in, don't you? You kind of put up the barriers. You protect yourself. Because it doesn't feel good to feel guilty, does it? And that pulling in creates more hardness of heart. We close ourselves off so we won't be judged. And so people won't look down at us and hate us or think less of us. And so the more hardness of heart we build up, guess what's going to happen? The more sin that's going to be occurring. And it's a repetitive cycle throughout life that we use. That's why God's not really into guilt. He's into forgiveness. He's not into guilt. Now, he's not above telling you the truth, but he really isn't into laying guilt trips on you. Only the, it took the church to come up with that one. One of my Jewish friends once told me, no, we were doing it before you all started. <laughs> to which I just said, well, we gladly adopted it. <laughs> I thought it was a good method. And, and so what we do is, is we heap guilt upon people. So what, what should we do then? Should we just say, well, okay, divorce is fine. It doesn't matter. Well, no. I mean, if you know or care about or have been divorced or know or care about anybody who has been divorced you know, a lot, you know that it's not really something you want to recommend to people. It hurts. It is painful. It is brokenness. It is not a good thing. It is not what God intended for us. But it also doesn't help to simply say you're a sinner because you're divorced. You know, when people tell me that, you know, because I've been divorced twice and remarried, and they say, well, that makes you an adulterer according to Scripture. I go, you think I wasn't aware? Or, <laughs> you know, can we talk about your sins now? Um, <laughs> Now, what I really say to him is, yes, you're right, but thanks be to God that I believe in a Savior, one who can redeem me from my sin, not because I deserve it, but because he loves me. And he isn't a, an easygoing Savior who just says, fine, I don't care. You know, do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. No, because he doesn't want me to keep sinning over and over again all the time. What he really wants is for me to be whole. To be, for me to be like it was when he made me. And to do that, I had to learn some things. And that's that hardness of heart breaks relationships. And it doesn't really matter whether you file the paperwork or not, by the way. There are a lot of people who are spiritually divorced who never file the paperwork. Because what happens when people, two people with hardness of heart get together? You ever clash two rocks together? They're hard, aren't they? You think it's very easy for them to become one flesh? Can you meld a rock into another one without melting it first? No. You can break it. 
And that's what we do. And you see that the divorce rate in our country is not nearly so much a symptom of the state of marriage as it is a state of our society. That we live with hardness of heart. And we do it not just in our marriage relationships. We do it all the time. Every time that we project the motives that we think why somebody else is doing something and we look down on them for it or we think less of them for it, we are hardening our hearts. Every time that somebody doesn't behave the way that we think that they ought to behave and we think less of them, we are hardening our hearts. We do it all the time. And and the church is sometimes the worst at it. You know, I'm always amazed at people. People, well, not old people. Some people have real problem with kids who are in church um, who make a lot of noise. You ever notice that? I mean, why can't they act more like adults? And it always occurred to me that maybe they should think about, they call it adultery for a reason. Childery doesn't seem to be much of a problem. But adultery does. And what it has to do with is with the way that we approach people. You see, little kids don't have hardened hearts yet. They're forgiving. They're trusting. They just want what they want when they want it. I mean... But it's not a malicious kind of thing. It's not like you're me, I don't like you and you're a bad person or there's something wrong with you. It's just a matter of where they are and how they feel. And Jesus says, if you don't enter the kingdom of heaven that way, you'll never get in. Because your hardness of heart will keep you out. You know, because it will keep you from ever being able to you know, see other people for who they really are. Instead, what you do will do is you will see people for who you think they should be. And you'll never be happy. I don't know if you all have noticed it or not, but most of the world, I've had a really difficult time in my life trying to get most people to be what I thought they should be. I don't know why that is. You people just are not cooperative. And part of the problem is that we decide what's normal and normal is what we think is right. And anybody who doesn't fit into that needs to be straightened out because they're crooked or something. And yet, the more we straighten them out, the more guilt we heap on them for what they do, then what happens is is that they become hardened too. And now we have two hardened hearts where once there was one. So what does it take to have a softer heart? What does it mean to be soft-hearted? Well, hard-hearted people would think that a soft-hearted person was a pushover for sure, but an easy touch, yeah. But that's not true. Really, what a soft-hearted person is is someone that when they see um, something happening, their initial response isn't, what is the matter with them? It is, I wonder what's going on with them. I wonder why they are doing the things they're doing. They care more about the other than they do themselves. They don't stop and think, you know, let's go back to a baby crying in church and think, that's interfering with my worshiping of God. You know what they wonder? They wonder, I wonder why the baby's crying. 
They don't think, what's the matter with those parents? Don't they have any way of controlling that kid? By the way, anybody's had kids for very long knows that's useless. But uh, but they think, gee, I wonder what's happening. And, and the worst are the parents who decide that they're going to control the situation, by the way. Have you ever seen parents when kids are screaming and they put their hands over their mouth? What happens when they, you do that? Hmm? Did they just calm right down and go, oh, okay, I didn't realize no, they scream louder. Well, think about it. If somebody put their hand over your mouth wouldn't, and you were trying to express dissatisfaction, wouldn't you scream louder? <laughs> so no wonder that. And the other one I like are the ones that go, la, 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 la. Ooh, that's helpful. Rather than taking the time to figure out, so what is going on here? You know, what, what's happening? Are they bored? Are they hungry? Are they mad? I mean, what, what is it? And then addressing what it is, we would rather have the quick solution. Be what we expect you to be. And it's not just little kids in church, by the way. That's our society. It's the way we are at work. It's the way we are when we drive to work. It's the way we are at home. And the divorce rate in our society says an awful lot about our hard-heartedness. Now, there is a problem. What happens when a hard-hearted person encounters a soft-hearted person? Nobody knows? You said it earlier. You get splat. I mean, if you hit a tomato with a rock, what's going to happen? I wouldn't eat it. But, but, and see, that's the other part of the problem is we can't say it's okay for one person to be soft-hearted, but every, you know, the other person can be hard-hearted. You still won't have a relationship. It won't work. Because all that happens is a soft-hearted person gets run over and destroyed. It really takes two soft-hearted people because when you have two soft-hearted people who look at one another and are more interested in the other's well-being and the other's happiness, and what is happening with the other person, and really tries to understand, then they can meld and become one flesh. Then they can become one. They won't break when they merge together. And all too often, we don't do that. We don't do it with our friends. We don't do it with our spouses. We don't do it with our kids. We just butt heads. You know, I do, I've done a lot of marriage counseling in my 25 years, and I can tell you there's a, the main problem in most marriages is this. And, and everybody who comes to marriage counseling basically wants me to fix the other person, whichever one it is. And the hardest part of, of my job as a, as a counselor is to convince them that each one of them has their own problem. Because they don't think they have a problem. The other person has a problem. And I can tell you that the ones that are successful at it are the ones who accept that they have a problem. And they need to change. It doesn't always save the marriage. It depends on where not both people do it. But if both people do it, then it really can be saved. So if we want to be 
not hard-hearted people. If we want to be like the little children who Jesus says will enter the kingdom of heaven, then one of the things we have to do is stop assuming the worst about people and assuming the worst every time something happens that we don't like. Now, I realize that's difficult, particularly in October before a major presidential election. But it is absurd the extent to which we have normalized this hard-heartedness. I heard an ad yesterday on the radio. It said that one, I'm not going to tell you the candidates were, but it said one of the candidates hated drilling so much that they were trying to outlaw dentistry. (laughs) At first I thought it was like Saturday Night Live or some joke or something, but it it was a political ad. And I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. And I wouldn't doubt there are some people going, yeah, that person does. They don't want any dentists out there anymore. I mean, what is going on with us that we actually believe this? People read things on the Internet and then tell people, oh, that's the truth. I'm like, where did you get it? On the Internet. Well, there you go. Did you all see that commercial where the woman comes up and she's talking to this guy and, and she says she's waiting for a new French model who's coming up and this big burly guy comes walking up and, and she goes, oh, here he is now. And the guy goes, oh. Bonjour. <laughs> and she smiles real big and goes off with him. I'm thinking, yep, that's, that's us. <laughs> I mean, just tell us, we'll believe it. Soft-heartedness means that people, one, don't have to lie to one another and tell one another the truth because our goal is not to get the upper hand on the other person, but rather to understand and to walk with the other person. It means that we are willing to put our own needs and concerns aside for the other one. And I can guarantee you, if you ask anybody who was married for a long time and had a good marriage, they will tell you that that's exactly what they did in some way or another. And chances are they will tell you that the other person was easy to get along with. Well, of course they're easy to get along with. If I know you care about me first, I'm much easier to get along with. If I know you care about you first, I'm much harder to get along with. Imagine that. And so what Jesus is trying to tell the disciples, the Pharisees, and us is that the issue of divorce isn't really the primary, you know, issue at hand here. Divorce 